0: Okay, it's a little bit, this is a little bit of a boring fact, but it's a fact nonetheless that right up until the 16th century, uh, almost everyone universally accepted the theories of a guy called Ptolemy uh, of Alexandria. Now, I'm sure you all are familiar, very familiar with Ptolemy's work, uh, but for those of you who aren't, uh, he was the guy who suggested that actually the earth was at the center of the universe and that all the sun and the moon and the stars all revolved around the earth. And right up until the 16th century, almost everybody believed that. They just assumed that was true. Uh, that was until a guy um, called, uh, whose statue of him in the picture, a guy called Nicholas Copernicus, uh, came along and published an explosive, an explosive idea. And he suggested that on the basis of his research and what he was able to observe through his uh, telescope, uh, he proposed that actually the sun was at the center of a solar system and that the earth and all the other planets moved around the sun. Uh, And that was very controversial in his day. Many people struggled to believe that. Uh, many people denied that. Uh, and you can tell what, you can see why in many ways the, the old ideas were so popular. Uh, because they flattered the human ego that actually we are at the center of everything. Uh, but as Nicholas Copernicus, who was later proved to be right, uh, a massive change of perspective had to take place. Massive change. Uh, To realize that reality is very different to how we assumed it was, and that we are not at the center of everything. Um, And really, the Lord's Prayer demands an even more radical Copernican revolution, an even more radical uh, shift in perspective that actually we are not at the center of our universe. Uh, It is God who is at the center of the universe. Uh, Jesus uh, in teaching his disciples uh, to develop uh, a mature prayer life, a more fulfilling prayer life, uh, demands this radical change of perspective. And that we are if we're to have a fulfilling prayer life, then we need to start with this change of perspective. And in many ways it's a bit like it's as radical as swapping the microscope for a telescope, okay? It's as radical as swapping a microscope for a telescope. Uh, If you, let me push that analogy a little bit further. We often live our lives looking through the microscope, looking, focusing on, obsessing over our wants, our needs, our concerns, our problems, uh, our feelings, our wants, But here we see that actually Jesus is saying there's something more important than you. There's something more important than you. There's someone more important than you. And if you're to have a a fulfilling prayer life, then that's where you need to begin. That's where you need to begin with that understanding. We'll come to that picture in a minute. Thank you. Let's go back uh, just for a second. (laughs) Um, Jesus is... uh, and we can see this radical change in perspective if you just glance down at the prayer. Just glance down at the prayer. I want you to look at the words in the prayer. I want you to notice that there's one word that dominates verses one or verses nine to ten. Uh, wonder did you spot it as we read through? And it's the word "your." Your uh, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, It's only after we focus on God and who he is that then we are ready. Uh, We are able to ask for what we need, our provision, our pardon, and our protection. What we need most is this radical change in perspective. Look, I, I guess this doesn't come natural to us. If you're anything like me, perhaps your prayer life sounds a little bit like this. Um, Lord, I'm really busy, I I, I got up a bit late, I've got five minutes, Uh, I need this, that, and the other today. Um, Is there anything you want to tell me? No? Okay, great. Uh, uh, Amen. And away off you go. We rush into God's presence and we we recite off our shopping list of requests and away off we go. Um, But again, we need to remember that that is not the way that we are to approach our Father in heaven. That is not. We need a radical change uh, of perspective. And we see it there, summarized in that second line of the, the prayer Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. I, I think that one line raises a whole host of questions. What is so significant about God's name? And what on earth does it mean to hallow it? Okay. So let me just uh, before we sort of unpack the the power of this change of perspective, let me just try to explain this line for you first. God's name, God's name. Now in western culture, names are convenient labels we give to individuals to differentiate them from other individuals, and that's pretty much the significance of it names are just labels, and so uh, we 've had lots of um, new babies in our church community uh, over the last over the last year or so, uh, and for every parent at some point they 'll have bought that baby book, that baby name book, stick up the picture now, John, that baby book right, or that website with all the baby names, and really what they 're looking for, what I was looking for when looking for a name for our child. Was a name that sounded good. That's maybe the first thing. A name that sounded good. Maybe the the initials didn't spell something embarrassing. That would be useful. Okay. So a name that sounded good. Perhaps had good associations. Uh, My wife is a teacher. She has lots of bad name associations. Let's just leave that hanging. Okay. She's lots of bad. No, no. We could never call him a whatever. Um, Or perhaps after a celebrity that you particularly like or admire. Uh, And to be honest, the name itself doesn't really matter uh, as long as it meets some of those criteria. And also, you need to be careful calling children after celebrities, just by the way. uh, I was just reading about celebrity names, children's names, you know, the potential next generation of celebrities. Uh, And so Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, they've called their children North, Northwest. That's just not kind That's his North Kai. North Saint Chicago, and they've just recently had another child they've called Sam, but not S A M, P S A L M. Okay? Really? Uh, I blame, to be honest, I blame um, Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow for starting this all with Apple. That's their fault to be honest but uh, I was looking up a couple of other names so there's Jamie Oliver and Jules who have four children two of whom are called Buddy Bear uh, and Petal Blossom Rainbow or my personal favorite Michael Jackson's third child anyone know who Michael Jackson's third child is called? Blanket. Ah, that 's just not kind that 's not kind, is it um, in, However, in our culture, names are just labels, names are just labels. but in the ancient world in the ancient world, and particularly in first century Jewish culture, names were hugely significant. They told you something about the person they told you something about the person. Uh, I think we see even a little glimpse of that today, um, but in the ancient world, think of, think of someone called Abraham. Why was he called Abraham? Well, he's called Abraham because he would be the father of many. Uh, and he became the father of many nations. His name told you something about him. Um, we can see a little glimpse of that today, uh, usually with nicknames. Nicknames. Um, I had a friend when I was a teenager, and he was, I, to be honest, I don't even today know his real name. Uh, we just all called him Smiley. Right? He was just a happy, kind of go-lucky guy. And we just called him Smiley. Um, it, his name told you something about his character. Um, we can also speak today of uh, companies and brands making a name for themselves. Making a name for themselves. Uh, and so uh, we know of people who love to buy their brands. Uh, love to have the, the, the label uh, on their shirts or on their whatever product or service that they're buying, and often we would say, "Oh, but they've spent more on that because they're just buying the name." But people do that because that company or that brand, over the years, has built up a reputation for quality, usually. And so, names very often can tell us something about the person. But also, names can reflect something of a person's reputation. And that is how God's name functions in the Bible. Um, we read right back near the beginning of the Bible. If we move on to the next slide, John. If we write uh, in the beginning of the Bible, we are introduced to God's name. Uh, God speaks to, to Moses from a burning bush, and he reveals his name And his name literally translated is I am who I am. And it's shortened as you go on through the Old Testament to I am or Yahweh in Hebrew. Um, Often corrupted in Latin to Jehovah. But in our English Bibles, it's always written. God's proper name is always written with a capital L, a capital O, a capital R, and a capital D, Lord. But every time you read that in English... That's actually a reference to God's proper name. God's proper name. Uh, and in, uh, when we come across God's name, we are meant to understand that this is a revelation that God is, uh, he is self-sufficient. He is incomparable. He is the ever-consistent one. He is limitless, uh, having no beginning or end. And in short, God's name is shorthand for his character and reputation so when we're called to hallow God's name it's it's this idea that we are called to recognize in some way God's reputation and his character what does it mean to hallow God's name well, for all you Harry Potter fans, it's got nothing to do with the Elder Wand or the Invisibility Cloak or the Stone of Resurrection. Uh, it's, it's this idea of being honored and respected by all. That's really the idea. It's an old English word, but I think it's really, we don't have a modern word like that. Honored, revered, respected by all. We don't, we don't have one word, which is why our English versions have chosen to keep this old English word. I think the nearest equivalent or nearest, maybe, usage of it today might be some sports commentator referring to the hallowed turf of Wembley or Anfield or Stanford Bridge in football, or referring to the hallowed turf of Wimbledon uh, for tennis, or the hallowed turf of Lords for cricket. Um, it's, ref- it's this idea that it's honoured and respected by all. And so when Jesus calls us to hallow God's name, uh, he means that we are to begin our prayer with praise, adoration, and rejoicing in who God is and what he has done. That's how we are to begin prayer. And this takes us to the second letter of the little acronym that I introduced last week that I've shamelessly stolen from Pete Gregg and his little book How to Pray. Uh, It's this acronym PRAY. P-R-A-Y. If you were with us last week we looked at the idea of P. PAUSE. We need to pause. Become aware of who God is and his presence with us and aware of our need. Where do we go from there? How do we start then praying after we still our hearts before him? Well, we move on to our, we need to rejoice, praise God for who he is and rejoice in all his blessings that he has given us before we ask for any more. And so really in the rest of my time, I want to just explore two ideas very briefly. Uh, And that is number one, this idea of the priority of praise and then the practice of praise so first idea, then, is the priority of praise. What does it look like, uh, and why is it important to uh, hallow God's name? Well, effectively, there's, prayer is a bit like a toolbox. There's effectively different kinds of prayer tools that we can use. Uh, first, there's the upward prayer, uh, the prayer of praise and adoration. There is the inward prayer, the prayer of confession and repentance, Uh, through which we get a deeper sense of our own failure. Uh, And then there's the outward prayer where we ask God for things uh, for ourselves and for others. And we see that all of those different tools are represented in this wonderful prayer by the Lord Jesus. There's asking prayer for give us. Uh, forgive us, deliver us. Asking prayer, and then there's uh, confessing prayer. Forgive us uh, our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Um, but I want to focus on this idea that Jesus tells us that what needs to come first, what needs to come first, is uh, adoration, praise, praising God for who He is and rejoicing uh, for in what He has done. Uh, I think the first disciples of Jesus truly learned this lesson. Uh, if you'll indulge me, flip over for a moment. Keep a finger or a part of your anatomy in Matthew chapter 6. We'll be returning there. But flip over in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. Um, if you want to look at it in your uh, church, your own Bible, that's great. Uh, church Bible, that's found on page 1096. But also the words will appear uh, on the screen behind me. Um, just to set the scene this is a, a, another prayer or a, a prayer from the, the first disciples um, just to set the scene a little bit uh, this is a matter of weeks after the death and the resurrection of Jesus um, just after Pentecost and Peter and John are standing up publicly to say that the authorities killed Jesus but God raised him and we saw him and he is the king God's king who can forgive anyone and grant the gift of the Holy Spirit? That's their. That's in a nutshell. That's their message, and they're standing up to say that in front of anyone that'll listen. Uh, but the Jewish authorities. This is making them look bad, and so they drag them. Um, these two men are dragged before the Jewish ruling council, and this is the same guy. These are the same guys who uh, were responsible for the death of Jesus. This must have been incredibly intimidating. Um, They're dragged in front of this Jewish ruling council, and they're sternly warned, shut up about Jesus or else. And they're sent home with a warning. Um, They go back. Uh, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported uh, all that the chief priests and elders said to them. Uh, and if that had been us, if that had been me, probably, what I would have done was would be organize a committee, right? And come up with a six-point action plan for what we were going to do. But that's not how they respond. How do they respond? Verse 24, when they heard this, this is what they instinctively do. They raise their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth, rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they played, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is a powerful prayer that God immediately answers. So we should pay attention to this prayer. The whole building is shaking. People are filled with great courage and boldness to go out and speak uh, even more clearly and boldly about Jesus. Uh, but I just want you to notice a couple of facts uh, about this prayer. In English, that prayer is 145 words long. Okay, I'm assuming they prayed more than that. It takes only a minute or so to read. I'm assuming that's just the the highlights, the notes of the prayer. Um, But the prayer is 145 words long. And only in the last 35 words do they actually get around to asking for anything. Did you notice that? 75% of the prayer is spent telling God stuff he already knows. You made the heavens and the earth. Um, Did you know they killed your son Jesus a few weeks ago? Now, why do they do that? Why do they do that? Why do they spend 75% of the prayer telling God stuff He already knows? Well, the reason they do that is they learn the lesson Jesus is teaching back in Matthew 6. They are hallowing God's name, they are hallowing God's name, they are rejoicing in who God is. They are praising him. Uh, they are remembering that he is a very big God who created the entire cosmos. Who power is, his, All power belongs to him. Uh, and he is the one who is unfolding his rescue plan in history. And when you see that as a believer, when you acknowledge that we worship a very, very big God who has a very, very big plan, then that puts all your problems and crises in the right perspective, doesn't it? And that's why they do that. And that's why Jesus told us to pray like that, because it gives us the correct perspective to see ourselves, to see our problems against the backdrop backdrop of a very big God, a very powerful God, who has a wonderful rescue plan unfolding in history that we get to play a small part in. Um, A few years ago, uh, there was a painting hanging in the National Gallery in London. There it is. Uh, It's a a painting uh, from the 15th century, a Renaissance artist, a guy called Filipino Lippi. Um, and it, no one doubts that it's, a, it's in many ways a masterpiece. He, no one doubts his skill, his use of color, uh, his technical ability. No one doubts that. But this was always, this one painting, although in many ways it's priceless, it was always regarded as one of his second-rate paintings. Um, uh, critics had, had, off, had long observed the fact that when you study this painting, the perspective is a bit off. The two characters at the front seem, who are. It's a picture of uh, Mary uh, with baby Jesus on her lap, with uh, St. Dominic um, and St. Jerome on either side bowing before her and Jesus. The two characters that are bowing down, the the critics have always noticed they look a bit awkward. Uh, The the hill in the background looks like it's about to topple the wrong way out of the painting. Uh, People have always criticized this painting until one day, a very famous, very distinguished uh, art critic called Robert Cummings was standing in the London Gallery looking at this painting, studying it, when it suddenly, perhaps for the first time to any critic, he acknowledged the fact, became aware of the fact that this probably was never designed to hang in an art gallery. Given its size, it was probably designed to to be placed and fixed on the front of an altar at the front of a church. And so with his very fancy suit in front of a very busy gallery full of all sorts of people, he very self-consciously got down on his knees on front of the painting and looked up at it. And when he did that for the first time uh, in his experience, all the perspective morphed and it became perfectly clear, perfectly proportional. You see, the, post- the, the, the problem was never with the painting. The problem was always with the posture of the people looking at the painting. It was designed to be bowed before. And only then do you get everything coming into clear perspective. And Jesus is giving us uh, a model of prayer that works like that. We, we are only qualified to get to our requests once we move through the first part of the prayer. And we acknowledge who God really is. Who is it we're really talking to? And what is it he's really doing in the world? Only then will our lives and our problems come into their clear and proper perspective. Tim Keller uh, puts it like this in his little book on prayer. Jesus' instruction on prayer, the Lord's Prayer, praise comes first. Praise motivates the other kinds of prayer. The more we attend to God's perfect holiness and justice, the more readily we will see our own flaws and confess them. Seeing God's greatness also leads to supplication. The more we sense his majesty and the more we realize our dependence on him, the more readily we will go to him for every need. We could say that awe-filled adoration of God corrects the other forms of prayer. And I think he's exactly right. I think he's exactly right. Uh, we need to learn the discipline and the posture of approaching God first with praise and awe and wonder for who he is. Look, I'm not saying, I'm not saying there'll never be occasion in which you need to just short circuit it and go straight to help me. Uh, there'll never be occasion where you need, to, you need to just jump straight in with forgive me. Of course, of course. But over the course of our prayer lives, praise should take the priority and should have the primary place. Uh, Tim Keller in his little book tells a story of uh, an old lady who really learned the lesson that uh, that that he's teaching there uh, and who came to him saying, I never understood what it was like to know the peace of God until I learned to praise him properly. And only then when I bring my problems to him Did I feel the burden fall off my shoulders? Do you want to understand? Do you want to experience peace? Well, the way to experience peace is to praise God properly. Praise God properly. The priority of praise. Uh, With the time that's left, the practice of praise. The practice of praise. What does this look like in in practical life? Um, I think... We need to acknowledge at the very beginning, it's all well and good for me to say that. You need to come to God with a heart of praise, praising him for who he is, rejoicing in all his blessings. But the reality is that very often we don't feel like it, do we? We don't feel, we don't feel praise kind of bubble up in our hearts. We're feeling sad. We're feeling anxious. We're feeling depressed. Uh, we're feeling angry. How is it that you can get to praising God when you initially don't feel like it? How does, how does that work? Well, I think we've got some brilliant advice on that point from King David uh, in the Psalms. He effectively tells us that if we don't, when we don't feel like praying, we should effectively take our souls and give them a good shake to try to wake them up. That's effectively what we're to do. Uh, And so you will notice if you read through many of the Psalms, very often the the writer of the Psalms, in this case David, is speaking to himself. He's speaking to himself. So when he is feeling lethargic, uh, apathetic, uh, this is what he says to himself. Praise the Lord, my soul, and all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits and then begins to recite off all his benefits. Very often, our souls are sleepy, and they need to be woken up. Uh, They need to be woken up, and we need to learn to recite out loud, I think, God's benefits, the the, the good gifts that he has given us. As the old hymn puts it, to count your blessings, name them one by one. There's real wisdom in that, to be honest. Uh, When we take out a stock take an inventory of the evidence of God's goodness and kindness to us and only then will your will you begin to ignite your feelings so that they line up with the facts Um, or again when David is feeling depressed in psalm 42 Uh, 43 which is originally one song there's this repeated refrain in verse 5 and 11 and chapter or in, in 43 verse 5 why my soul are you downcast why so disturbed with me within me put your hope in god for i will yet praise him my savior and my god see what david is doing he's taking his soul and giving it a good shake here is reality wake up here is what God has done for you. Here is who he really is. Praise him. Uh, and as we do that, uh, our feelings begin to line up with the facts. Now, that might feel a little bit odd initially. feels like you're being a little bit of a fake. I I, I struggled with this for a long time. I used to think I'm being a bit inauthentic, you know, saying praise you when I don't feel it. Oh. Uh, but then I came to realize that actually If you you take the idea uh, and apply it to your marriage, for those of you who are married, if you only ever told your spouse that you loved them was during a hormonal surge or a particularly emotional moment, the reality is you just simply wouldn't tell them you love them enough. Is that not right? In fact, it's all the more meaningful in the cold light of day, on the... Busy Tuesday morning to tell your spouse that you love you love them. In the same way, God recognizes that uh, our hearts, the state of our hearts, He is pleased with our praise, and it is good for us to praise Him because it lines up our feelings increasingly with our hearts, or with, or with the facts, our feelings with the facts. I think a brilliant resource for that number two is the Psalms as praise. The Psalms as praise. Uh, it's my personal practice. I, I read I read a Psalm every every day uh, in the morning. Um, I find that incredibly helpful to stir to stir up my soul. Uh, there's usually, more often than not, there's at least one sentence in the song that, that sort of jumps out at me and resonates with me and sticks with me for the rest of the day. Um, and I, I just think it's an, amazing, it's an amazing fact that we have in our hands the very prayer book, the very song book that Jesus used and memorized and loved. That's our privilege. We have that. Why would you not read a psalm every day to stir your soul, to give you vocabulary to help you praise him uh, and to help you rejoice uh, in his goodness? The problem of praise, the psalms as praise. But I think even if you flip back lastly to uh, our um, passage this morning, back to the, the Lord's Prayer, I think Jesus gives us a brilliant little key to prompt our praise for God right in this prayer. Uh, One writer has called it the pendulum of praise, the pendulum of praise. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Um, We have a Father uh, who is wise uh, and kind and attentive and loving. Um, In fact, take a human father, the ideal human father, who is all those things, wise and caring and attentive and kind and generous and loving. And imagine that you could strain out of him all the bad things, all the selfishness, uh, all the overbearingness, uh, all the weakness, all the cruelty, all the abuse or neglect. You could just filter all that out You started with a generally good dad and you're now left with a perfect human father. Well, in the Bible, you're saying, the Bible tells us you're not even beginning to understand the goodness of our heavenly father. He is a million times, a billion times, infinitely superior to the perfect human father. He is someone who knows your every need, is concerned for your every need. Desires good things for you. The wonderful thing about pendulums is the more they swing one way, the more they swing back again. He's our father, but also he's our father in heaven. He has good intentions for you, but he is the only one who can fulfill every intention that he has. He can bring every plan that he has Uh, to fulfillment nothing can ever thwart his purposes nothing can ever get in the way of his intentions he is the God of heaven and this God of awesome power and might before whom millions of angels bow who sits in the control center of the universe loves and cares for you and you keep swinging power and might his goodness and kindness put together that's an awesome combination for praise isn't it I am far from a perfect dad Far, on, despite what the card told me this morning I'm far from a perfect dad um, but I have good intentions for the two boys under my care I ache for them to be happy I yearn for them to be successful that would delight me and if that 's the way I feel towards my children, how much more does your father in heaven feel towards you i would I yearn for those things for the boys under my care but but actually, I am very limited in my influence and i 'm very limited in my power to bring those intentions to bear for them, but yet we have a father who cannot be thwarted, uh, who every intention he has for us must happen. Pete Gregg, in his little book, puts it like this. He, referring to God, is a loving father who greets us uh, with a smile, not a scowl, but he's also in heaven and hallowed, sovereign, awesome, and mysterious, which means we can trust him even when we don't understand him. The invitation of adoration means greet your heavenly Father by name, meeting his smile with a smile, responding to his kindness with kindness, his presence with presence, and his love with our own. You see, if you understand who it is you're praying to, it will fuel your praise for him. And give you delight to tell him, like a little toddler tells their child, to tell him everything and to ask of him anything. Because that's how little toddlers who know they're loved relate to their father. And that will be fuel for our praise. And when we see God like that, when we see God like that, only then... Will we have true perspective on our own lives and our own problems? And only then are we ready to ask him anything. But more about that next week. Let me pray for us before we sing again.